Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading today is from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Faith Church and guests. I am Jeff Schultz. I'm glad to be here. Uh, with you to worship this morning. Uh, all of our scripture readers do a fantastic job, but I'm slightly partial to our scripture reader this morning. Uh, Amelia and I uh, were married in the early 90s, and the timing was providential because it was uh, right about the time that Disney was really starting to get back to producing quality, popular movies with good stories. And so uh, we were a young married couple with no kids, and, and we were going to see things like The Little Mermaid and uh, The Lion King, and, and then God blessed us with children, and, and we had an excuse for watching movies like Beauty and the Beast and, uh, and Aladdin. Uh, I was uh, thinking about uh, that story of Aladdin recently in the context of this passage we're looking at today. Most of you probably know the story. Aladdin is this uh, poor orphan uh, making a living kind of by his uh, wits and his uh, charm and uh, a little petty thievery in the bazaar. And uh, he runs into Princess Jasmine, who is in disguise as a commoner, and uh, they connect, and, and something sparks. They're, they're separated uh, through a whole series of events. Aladdin ends up in this uh, cave of wonders where he accidentally discovers a lamp that when he rubs it, out pops Robin Williams. That's amazing, right? Robin Williams does a great job with that genie character. This genie says, uh, I'm this all-powerful genie, and I can grant you three wishes. What do you want? Man, what, what would you do with that, right? Especially if it's Robin Williams, right? Just, just talk for 10 minutes. I don't care. So Aladdin says, uh, well, there's this girl. She's beautiful. And then Jesus says, well, time out. Can't make people fall in love. He goes, oh, I know, I know. And, and anyway, she's a princess. I mean, to even have a chance with her, I'd have to, wait, could you make me a prince? And so, of course, you know, a whole opportunity for a great song and dance uh, uh, song routine with Robin Williams, and, uh, and he uh, turns Aladdin into this rich, impressive, popular prince that, that 
gets him into the palace. And as the story goes on, he's, he's there with Aladdin. He rescues him from dangers, and, and, uh, and he guides him. He gives him good advice, and, and he helps him in this quest to, to win the princess's heart. Wouldn't that be great to have something like that? Like a, some kind of a supernatural, powerful being that, to call on, that someone who could, could, could guide us and protect us and provide for us and solve our problems. Sounds like that would make life awesome, right? Well, last week, Joey got us off to a great start in this uh, series in the book of Hebrews that we're going to be going through for the next uh, eight or nine months. The church has long believed that this letter was written to a group of believers from uh, Jewish backgrounds who were beginning to suffer for their faith. And in that suffering, they were facing the temptation to give up, to turn back from following Jesus and to something that looked like a little less threatening, a little less demanding, kind of an easier discipleship, back to something that was familiar. And the author of this letter, whom we don't know, is going to great lengths to to point out this one central idea that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. He's better than the sacrificial system, not because there was anything wrong with them, but they were incomplete. The Old Testament is shadow, and the New Testament is what's revealed. The the Old Testament is anticipation, and the New Testament in Jesus is fulfillment, because Jesus is better, better than anything, better than anyone that we could hope in or, or long for or turn to or trust in. And today, We're seeing in this passage, Jesus is greater than angels. Why angels? Joey mentioned last week that uh, Jewish tradition held that uh, whenever God spoke to his people, that angels were the ones that brought that message. Now, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but if you think about it, all the times in in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, when angels show up to, to warn of God's judgment, to communicate God's word, to to declare his intentions. They appear to people in dreams and visions. And and that's a lot different from kind of our contemporary version of angels, right? Uh, They're often little cute cherubs with, uh, you know, tiny wings and and cute little baby arms, or uh, or maybe it's a sort of gentle guiding guardian. I'm not even sure why those kids need a guardian angel. It's like a three-foot-long bridge over a one-foot-deep creek. You could just, and there's a railing on the side. But the guardian angel is there to, you know, it's, she's just sort of nice and protective and, and sweet. And uh, you might even see cartoons sometimes, you know, someone with an angel on one shoulder and a, a devil on the other, and they're sort of arguing back and forth. But angel does mean messenger. That, that's the core concept. And, and we get a lot of hints and images of what those beings are like in the Bible. The Bible gives us a pretty different picture. Angels, to God's Old Testament believers, were exalted, majestic beings. God puts a cherub outside the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are driven out. And and this angel has a flaming sword to keep them from re-entering. This is an awesome being. Maybe you've heard of or we sometimes sing about seraphim which literally means kind of bright ones or, or burning ones. 
Now think about what that's conveying. Angels are apparently awesome beings. Anytime somebody encounters an angel in the Bible, it's not a comforting kind of thing. It's scary. People fall down and they're tempted to worship these beings because they reflect some of God's glory. They maybe look a little more like this, a, a, a blazing heavenly being of dazzling radiance and glory. We get this vision of, from Isaiah of these seraphim who are hovering around the throne in this vision in the temple and, and with two wings they're flying and two wings they're covering their feet because they're in a holy place and with two wings they're covering their faces because they can't even bear the weight of seeing God's glory. And they themselves reflect that glory in, in awesome ways. Angels attend God before his throne. They worship him. They, they praise him. They call out to each other to sing his glory and his worth. They, they guide and direct and deliver. They, they bring God's messages. They are warriors for God, not, not cute little babies. I mean, one of the names for God is Lord Sabaoth, the God of hosts, angel armies, myriads upon myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands of shining, glorious beings. Last week we ended in Hebrews 1 at verse 4, and that's kind of the transition to what we're looking at this morning. That Jesus has been made as much superior even to these exalted beings as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. That's the key to the section that we're looking at today, that Jesus is greater than angels. Angels are awesome. Jesus is greater. We want to get into our passage today in Hebrews 1. So if you have your Bible, you can pull it out and open it. If you want one of those black Bibles in the pocket in the seat underneath you, it's on page 1187. And if you have one or want to get one after worship, we have for this series these Hebrew study journals that have the text of Hebrews on one side and then space for notes on the other. And uh, I got some good notes from Joey last week and I left notes that I, so I can take notes today too. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? That's a quote from Psalm 2. And it's not about a physical descent or, or Jesus in, in some way, you know, being the, the birth child of, of God like we are born. It's a picture of God's divine, eternal fatherhood, his sponsorship, his affirmation of Jesus as the eternal son, as the one who would sit on God's throne and rule over his kingdom. It, it's a picture of a, a king ruling victoriously. And it's understood even hundreds of years before Christ as a prophecy about the Messiah who would come. And the early church understood this, not even so much about Jesus' incarnation, but his sort of, we could say, investiture, his induction as king of the universe as he is raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father. God vindicates Jesus as Messiah and establishes his reign and it's a picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son here that, that's carried over into the second half of the verse from 2 Samuel 7. 
God saying to David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's a promise we would think about Solomon, but Solomon never fulfilled this. Because it it couldn't be about Solomon to rule forever in God's place. Here we see that the son is the Messiah who has a unique relationship in, in contrast to every created being. Remember we saw last week in the passage Joey took us through how how the Son is the exact radiance of God, the fullness of His character. He sustains all things in Himself. Here we see that the Son is equal to the Father. He is the heir of everything that the Father has. That's what this writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand, that Jesus is greater than any creature. Angels are awesome. Angels are majestic, but they are created beings, and Jesus is greater. Look at what he goes on to say. When he brings his firstborn, Christ, the firstborn, not, again, of physical descent, but preeminence in the family, the the place of authority and inheritance, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Maybe makes us think of when Jesus' birth is announced through the angels, remember. The whole company of angels filling the sky saying, glory to God in the highest. Angels are incredibly impressive. And and just one little side note, nobody becomes an angel. You guys know the, the holiday classic uh, what, what is it? It's a wonderful life, right? Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Really sweet Hallmark sentiment. It's totally unbiblical. It has nothing to do with what God says. Angels are created beings separate from humans. Nobody dies and goes to heaven to become an angel. God created the angels. And apart from man, they are, we would probably say, the height of God's non-human creation. Only men and women are made in God's image. Angels have their own special kind of glory as spiritual beings. If there's anything awesome, anything attention-grabbing, anything impressive in what God has made, it is angels. But they're only created beings. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator, and he is the God to be worshipped. Even the angels are called to worship him. How much more us? Commentator H.C. Trumbull says this, the more you think about Christ, the more you think of him. The more you think about Christ, the more you invest in focusing your thoughts on Christ, the more you will think of him. Those who know Christ best think of Christ in the highest sense. The more time we spend seeing the glory of Christ and worshiping him, the more we love him, the more we esteem him, the more we treasure him. Anyone uh, ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Anyone experience the reality of that phrase? Yes, I think we, we probably all have, right? It reflects a truth about humans and about relationships and The more time that we spend with someone, it becomes easier to see all the flaws and and all the little idiosyncrasies. The longer you're married, uh, 
the more you start to notice the things that didn't seem important when you were dating. And, oh, that'll be fine. It's no problem. And it, it's kind of cute how she sneezes 12 times in a row every time, you know, she gets a tickle in her nose. And, and then after 10 years of marriage, you're saying, can, can you knock it off? Like, go to another room, take an allergy pill, enough already, right? I'm only blessing you once, and then it, it counts for all the rest of them. Maybe it's a person you work with, you know, a, a boss or coworker you respect, but, you know, over time you start to notice, oh, all the, all the little missteps and the failures and, and, the, and the foibles. Think of your favorite food. No, no, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever it is for you, mint chocolate chip ice cream, ribeye steak, fresh peaches, fried okra, anything. Think of your favorite food. Now imagine having that food for every meal for the next 10 meals in a row. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. By breakfast on the fourth day, you are, we're all going to be saying, is there anything else I can have to eat? Please let me have something else. I love steak, but I'm ready for a salad. But the longer you know Christ, the more precious he becomes, the more beautiful he is, the more you desire him, the more you see how worthy he is of worship and praise and gratitude. Sometimes we get worship confused, and it's just a natural human temptation to make it too much about ourselves, how we feel, whether it's pleasing us, whether it's engaging our emotions in a certain way, whether the music is performed well, whether it's at the right tempo, whether it's at the right volume. The angels worship the Son continuously because they see Him. Because they see him. They see him for who he is. They see him in his glory. They see his kindness, his majesty, his holiness, his righteousness. They see Jesus without any distractions, without worrying about them or what they're thinking. And and they're just led to praise him. The more we think about Jesus, the more we will think of him because he is greater and he is worthy of worship. That's what worship is to declare the worth of something, the worthship. Jesus is greater. He's the God to be worshiped. Look at how the writer goes on in verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Again, this, this awesome picture that's really directing us to the glory of God. Because in Psalm 104, 104 where this comes from, it's, it's really about how amazing is God. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. He makes the clouds his chariots. Even his angelic servants are impressive and glorious, but they are still only servants. Jesus is greater than just a servant. Now, praise God that he took on the form of a servant and came to serve for us and die for us on the cross. But Jesus is so much more than a servant like these angels. Look at how he goes on in verse 8. Of the Son, though, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of 
uprightness or justice is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. That's from Psalm 45. It's a picture, again, of a, of a sort of an exalted son of David who is sitting on the throne and ruling God's people forever. And obviously, that's not Solomon. It's not Jeroboam or any of those guys. It's a picture of unending reign of righteousness, justice, and joy that we only get a, a taste of here. The writer is pointing out that as glorious and awesome as God's angelic servants are, Jesus is greater than a servant. He is the son who rules over the household of God. He is the one who commands the servants and tells them what to do. Angels are ministers. The son sits on the throne and gives them direction. Only a son can become a king. Jesus is the ruler. He's not just a servant. He's above that. He's the ruler. He is, in fact, a Lord to be followed. Look again at how Jesus is pictured here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness, of justice, is yours. You love righteousness, therefore God has exalted you with the oil of gladness. I just want us to rest here for a minute on three things that I think the, the writer is getting at. As I follow Jesus, I will find real gladness. In Jesus, I find satisfaction that nothing else will give me. Because it's this picture of this overflowing abundance of the oil of joy and gladness and, and fullness that is intended to remind us no created thing will ever give us lasting joy and fulfillment. No person, no thing can do it. No person, even made in the image of God, can ever be the ultimate source of my satisfaction, my identity, my security, my happiness. Do you believe Jesus when he says, I have come that they may have joy and have it abundantly? Created things and other creatures will never satisfy the longings of your heart that were meant to be satisfied by the Creator, by the Lord that we follow. You were made to follow Him. Can you trust that Jesus intends to do right? That He intends to do good and give good things to you? That He knows what's best for you even when He doesn't give you the things that we want? That he is good and trustworthy in our relationships, in our finances, in our sexuality, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our words, in how we use our free time. That Jesus leads me in a good way to a satisfaction greater than any created thing can give me. And then he says, as I follow Jesus, I will be led into rightness. I am being made into what I ought to be. Jesus is leading me and helping me to get to where I need to go. There's a lot of practical wisdom in the world and in God's word, of course, too. But no guru, no self-help book, and if I can say this cautiously, listen to what I'm saying, not even God's word by itself 
will get you to be the person that God intends you to be. Because unless it is empowered by the Spirit of God living within you, it is you simply trying to do the thing in your own power. Even God's Word, as true as it is, cannot fix you. Because if I'm broken and I am my own problem, I cannot solve myself. I cannot save myself. I need a Savior. Angels can bring me God's word and tell me what I ought to do, but they cannot help me do it. I need change from the inside out, whereby Jesus himself would come to live in me by his spirit. And and yes, give me the guidance that I need for my life. I need to let him correct me and challenge me. I mean, pay attention to to, how angels are portrayed in popular culture. Do they ever challenge people? Do they ever tell you anything you don't want to hear? No, it's just all comforting, pleasant platitudes. You're you're fine the way you are, and we're just here to encourage you and tell you you're doing great. Thumbs up and keep up the good work. God sometimes has to lovingly get in our faces because we're stupid and foolish and sinful. And we need to be challenged. But he doesn't just challenge us, he also changes us. You need something better than an angel to simply tell you what to do. You need a Lord to follow and who will empower you to do what he calls you to do. And then as I follow Jesus, I can trust his justice. Not so much in the sense of judgment, which comes in a little bit, but but I have confidence that he is at work in my life to do what is right. Because that's what justice is, ultimately, isn't it? It's doing what is right, doing what ought to be done, given all the circumstances, all the need, all the people involved. I need more than a heavenly messenger. I need someone who rules with a scepter of uprightness, a a Lord who will not let me down, who will not betray me, who will not tell me pleasant lies to make me happy, who will not take advantage of me, who would not betray me. Would you follow a Lord like that? That's what you were made for. And then finally, quickly try and get through this last section. Jesus is greater than just a messenger. Look at how the writer goes on. You, O Lord, lay the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hand. They will all wear out and perish, but you are the same. You are eternal. And certainly not to any of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Angels warn of God's judgment. Angels point the way to God's rescue, but they don't rescue. We need a Savior who is merciful and a judge who is righteous. You know, for anyone who pays attention to politics or national news, the last few weeks have, uh, man, it's been a thing, right? The last few months, maybe the last couple of years. But, but particularly recently, I mean, uh, anger, confusion, and hurt from all sides, a bitter confrontation over a nomination for a Supreme Court seat. And in that, victims of sexual assault had fresh wounds reopened. Some of them felt that their stories were dismissed. Their, their pain was sort of waved off and ignored and discounted. Others were angry and hurt and concerned at the possibility that a person's reputation and career could be irreparably damaged by unproven accusations. Are, you know, are we heading into uh, 
a, a sort of wonderland where now it's guilty until proven innocent or, you know, allegations, all we need to do is hear an accusation and then we just assume it's true. And a lot of people also felt caught in the middle watching from the sidelines and just watching all the angry yelling back and forth. And we don't know what's right and, and thankfully it's not our decision to make, but concerned about how this whole thing is playing out with sarcasm and bitterness and hostility and yelling and partisanship. And maybe a lot of that is fueled by this sense that our hope is in getting the right people in place. If we can just get this person in place or get rid of that person, make sure that person doesn't get in that place, it's all going to work out. If we can just get this one law right or get rid of this one other law, how much of our discussion about all the things going on in the world sound like that, though, that our hope is about politics and policies and Jesus is the Savior and the judge. Jesus is greater. Jesus is our hope. He is the one that we hope in. You know, I mean, this plays out in a, in a thousand different ways, right? I mean, we don't put our hope for safety in having enough guns or in getting rid of guns or in magically figuring out the right number of guns and the right kind of guns and the right laws to restrict the guns. I mean, it's not that those things don't matter. Those things matter. They do matter. We care about them. We advocate for them. We pray for them. But we're not going to agree on them as believers, and they can't be our source of hope. Our hope is not in our kids turning out a certain way. I mean, man, those of us who are parents, boy, do we know that temptation. Like, okay, just look good in front of these other Why are you acting up now of all times? Right? Like, I need you to be good so that other people will think I'm a good parent. And we put our hope for identity and recognition in how our children do or the grades they get or what they accomplish. Our hope is not finding the one, the one person to fulfill our lives, the, the one car, the one job, the one place, the one thing. We pray and we work and, and we engage and we serve in, in this world and in our community that shows our hope is not in any human judge or court or Congress or Constitution or another person or another thing at all. Our hope is in the one eternal merciful Savior who is also the righteous judge. And because we have hope in a judge who will make his enemies his footstool, which is an awesome and a terrifying thing to consider, that there will come a day when Jesus returns, not to suffer, not to plead for you to be reconciled to him, but game over. All the pieces go back in the box. And Jesus is coming again to rule and reign and destroy sin. And all who have not been reconciled to the Father through him, because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And he is coming again to make his enemies his footstool. Maybe that's language that makes us feel a little weird or uncomfortable. But do we want evil to be judged? I hope that's what we want. I hope you want that kind of a God. Because we have that kind of a righteous judge, we don't have to become anxious and fearful and wound up about trying to make perfect justice happen here because it will not until Jesus returns. 
It doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean we're not involved. We work now with the energy and the hope and the resources that God provides, not out of fear, not out of anxiety, not out of I need to control other people, but because we long to see people experience the flourishing and the life that Jesus offers. And we want to see this world reflect more of his grace and his truth and his beauty and his justice and his goodness. But the pressure's not on me. And so I don't get all wound up and anxious about it. And now I work in this world from a place of confident hope in Jesus. And I don't have to vindicate myself either then. Man, is that a lifelong process. How easy it is to jump to our own defense and want to make sure everyone understands and want to make sure everyone you know, agrees with me. Someone's wrong on the internet. I need to go correct them. Jesus helps me realize my own limits my own shortcomings, my own failures. Can I say this, and hopefully we can understand this too, the world is not neatly divided into good guys and bad guys. The world is full of sinful, broken, foolish people like all of us who need Jesus. And and we're all hopefully in process of trying to grow and follow him more and more. Jesus will return in glory and power to judge and conquer every evil. He will straighten everyone out, including me. And that gives me both a humility and a confidence that he knows. He knows me, he knows my name, and I am trusting in him. If only for my peace and sanity in a crazy and broken world, I need to know that there is a merciful Savior and a righteous judge to hope in. Is that your hope? Real quickly, look back at verse 4. This transition verse that we started with. Jesus has become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then down verse 14, the end of this passage, this little wraparound. Angels are ministering spirits to serve those who are to inherit salvation. Do you see the connection there? Because Jesus has inherited the name of Son and Lord and God. We can now inherit salvation through him. And that makes all the difference. That is a God worth worshiping, a Lord worth following, a judge and a Savior worth hoping in. Who are you listening to? Where do you turn for comfort? for direction, for inspiration. Whether it's angels or genies or, you know, the horoscope, whatever it is. I mean, there's a, there's a thousand, thousand offers on the table, right? And maybe all of that is appealing because they're less demanding than God. They're, they seem less threatening. It'd be nice to have some insight, some direction, some confidence, some security, some protection for us. But what we really need, and I think what we really want, is to hear from someone who is actually in control. To have a God who is worthy of worship that would be the center of our lives. And to have a hope grounded in something so much greater than this world. And any outcome we could achieve here. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work and his 
saving power on our behalf. Thank you that Jesus has inherited the name above every name. He's not just another created being, but he is the creator. He is the Lord. He is our God. He is our judge and our savior. Oh, Jesus, help us to see you more and more like that. To see you as worthy, to trust you, to love you, to follow you, to hope in you because you are greater. You are the greatest. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.